cloud infrastructure is usually consumed in the form of virtual machines or containers. These VMs or containers are running on a physical host machine that is also running other VMs and containers. This is called multi-tenancy. Servers across cloud providers such as AWS have a high utilization because there are multiple virtual instances running on each physical server host. Cloud computing has led to a low cost of compute infrastructure. But in some cases, this low cost comes at a price of not being able to control the underlying hardware with as much precision as the user would want. Some users want specific types of hardware. Other users want to be using dedicated hardware that does not risk the noisy neighbor problem of sharing a physical server with some other application that might be hogging most of the other resources. Packet is a company that provides remote access to bare metal infrastructure. The user experience is similar to that of a cloud provider, but with more control over how a given physical host will be used. Zachary Smith is the CEO of Packet, and Nathan Goulding is the chief architect. Zach and Nathan join the show to talk about the business and the engineering behind Packet, as well as the future goals for where they want to take the company. If you are planning a hackathon, check out Find Collabs Hackathons. Whether you are running an internal hackathon for your company or you're running an open hackathon so that users can try out your product, Find Collabs Hackathons are a tool for people to build projects and collaborate with each other. Find Collabs is a company I started to allow people to find collaborators for their software projects. And our new hackathon product allows you to organize your hackathon participants to make your hackathon as productive as possible. Check it out at findcollabs.com. Nathan and Zach, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. How's it going? Going great. So... I am a millennial, and I don't ever want to touch a server. So I like infrastructure as a service. Why would I ever go anywhere other than Amazon or Google or Microsoft for my cloud provider? And you're a millennial, yeah? I mean, solid, like 1983? 88. 88, wow. Okay, so VCRs were not in your world, huh? No, they were. They were. All right, cool. Well, you ask a really interesting question. Even laser, laser, laser disc, laser disc also. I remember <laughs> laser disc. All the good ones. Well, this is a good question. When we started Packet, we said, how can we automate infrastructure for a new generation, which kind of, you know, boils down to millennial developers, frankly, because you and your friends are slowly, if not so, so slowly taking over the world. And so we thought, how could we give a out-of-box experience that was highly automated and yet, and this is a really cool part, allowed you to innovate all the way down. And so our point was, could we give you not crappy, really awesome, programmatic control of hardware sitting in somebody else's data center that you never had to go and touch? And so what people do with us here is mainly they innovate one layer deeper where they have a strong amount of opinion on the software that they write, the hardware that they run it on, or the places that they put it. And that's where they come to us versus one of the hyperscale clouds that frankly are really awesome experiences that but push you into a high amount of software software abstraction. Yeah, and I'll add to that that you know I think that the you know a few other emerging trends, you know, specifically around you know container and container deployment really kind of obviated the need for the uh, hypervisor to kind of be there, you know, in terms of you have the bare metal, then on top of that, you layer on your hypervisor, and then on top of that, you layer on your container runtime environment. And then finally, ultimately, maybe you have your application there. And so 
being able to hand over a bare metal system in the same time that it takes to provision a virtual machine on one of the uh, hyperscaler clouds, and in some cases, uh, actually even faster, allows people to run their containers on native metal without having to have a bunch of kind of orchestration layers in between, which just makes it much easier to kind of maintain and control. And also, at the end of the day, gives kind of a better performance experience as well. The overhead of the orchestration layer that you're referring to, this is epitomized by Amazon EC2. If I spin up a Amazon EC2 instance, it's a virtual machine. It's uh, sitting on a hypervisor on an Amazon box somewhere in an Amazon data center. Yep. And that virtual virtualization layer, the hypervisor, hypervisor is a term for basically a, a virtualization, a VM manager. And these different VMs that are being managed by the hypervisor, well, these VMs are competing for resources. So if you have a VM on that hypervisor that's eating up all of the space on that physical host, then when you get your EC2 instance provisioned on that same physical host as uh, some other greedy application, you have what's called the noisy neighbor problem. And when you have more control over the actual physical infrastructure, you're not going to be subject to that noisy neighbor problem. What are the kinds of companies that are sensitive to this noisy neighbor problem. Why wouldn't I? I mean, most applications, can I just go on EC2 anyway? And like, if there's a noisy neighbor, I can work around it. Like, why do I care about this problem? I'd love to take this one because I thought of the coolest millennial kind of description right now you were talking. It's kind of like the difference when you're coming back from JFK late at night and you're like, should I take Uber Pool? Or Uber X. Like, <laughs> Uber X every time. Every time, right? It's late <laughs> so, at night. I don't have exactly. time for pool. <laughs> no time for that sharing noisy neighbor situation. So, anyways, you know, for the vast majority of developers and companies actually using an Amazon style service where you get a ton of scale. I mean, it's a pretty generic product, right? You've got it in US East or US West or or whatnot. You've got, you know, relative kind of menu to choose from related to the services. This is totally fine. This is actually completely good, right? It's like the 80% bell curve of internet infrastructure, or as I like to use an analogy, it's the retail checking account of IIS. Like almost everybody needs it. It's totally fine for them, except if you have, you know, a billion dollars in your checking account and then it's the wrong product. And so what we find is that people who are really pushing the limits on um, use cases, they almost always start to have a strong amount of opinion about the software that they run, including all aspects, who they share it with, what it's running on, what runtime, maybe they invented their own thing, maybe they're using a very specific DOM0 kernel, whatever it is, right? And also, you know, what kind of where they put it, right? So you have an architecture question or a location question or, or anything else like that. And so this is the type of thing that you don't get to control within a hyperscale cloud, which is making the vast majority of the decisions for you so they can give you a great price on a retail checking account. So what Packet's looking for is who are the customers? We kind of think of it as the next one or 2,000 technology-enabled enterprises of the next decade who are really winning their businesses or building their experiences or growing their markets based upon a technological advantage. And I think that um, once you're building a really big business based upon technology, you end up getting a lot of opinion about the things that you run it on the software that you're using or who you might be sharing with or where you're putting it. And so the initial initial use cases in our biggest customers today might be something you're carrying around in your pocket, which is, uh, you know, a specialty amount of 
very specific hardware and very specific software called your phone, right? Which is not generic at all. It's actually super specialized. And so some of our biggest customers are running large-scale 5G networks where they have an ultimate amount of opinion around the hardware that they're going to run a very specific application called a 5G network on and where they're going to put it, which might not make sense for almost anybody else. For example, putting you know, wireless infrastructure in Tukwila probably doesn't matter to most people, but it matters a lot to a few people. And so that's the real differentiator of Packet is we give you kind of a very portable layer of automated hardware that we'll take anywhere for you. We have a model called our Edge model where we partner with real estate and we'll put that in any city town around the country or the world and run it for you. Can we go a little bit deeper into the telecom use case? Because 5G and telecom infrastructure more generally is something that I think a lot of software engineers, they understand that there is a heavy, heavy software component to this, but it's very much a black box. Like I know that like when I make a phone call, that phone call is being routed through like cell towers and stuff and but like what is actually going on there and like i thought they just texted (laughs) i had to call an uber driver yesterday um (laughs) so you know i called my mom you have to use the communications apis that your forebears used but anyway so like the telecom infrastructure like what is this software like is this uh is this a big like uh, C application or C like C plus plus application that's routing telephone calls. It needs to be like super duper fast because it needs to route from one phone phone number to another. Or like, can you give me a little bit of context so I have a little bit more understanding of what the actual application that the telecom provider is running uh, looks like and why they cannot run that on like a heavy multi layer virtualization stack that yeah. they don't control. Well, let me take a stab and then Nathan will correct me. So, well, first and foremost, we're going through a really, really big shift in the the world of mobile right now. We're going through not only a technology change, e.g. from 4G to 5G, which is causing a massive infrastructure upgrade, technology upgrade, et cetera. The cloud is kind of hitting these guys. So if you think about when was the last time big wireless providers, which is a multi-hundred billion dollar a year industry, upgraded their networks, really? Well, that was pre-iPhone, right? So LTE was just coming out. It was planned in the early 2000s, rolled out in probably, what, 2007, eight, you know, things like that. And so if you think about this, this is primarily a network that was built for voice. That was what most people were doing, maybe a little text messaging. And things have just dramatically changed since 4G started being rolled out or LTE was rolled out. And at the time, you think about the world of the cloud. I mean, AWS has started in 2006. So there was no cloud when people were designing 4G. It was just like really hardcore IT. And so, you, you know, people built 4G networks with highly centralized, you know, appliance black boxes from the likes of Ericsson and Nokia and whatnot. I guess it was Alcatel, Lucent or something at the time. And so you have these highly proprietary silicon, you know, maybe ASICs or line cards or whatnot that have embedded software on it that do like one thing called like packet switched voice. <laughs> and they do it really well. They do a lot of metering. They calculate every single call that you're doing. Every minute is going on, how you roam between radios, like lots of math is happening, and it's being done in a very embedded and proprietary manner. 
And then what's happened over the last 10 or 15 years is that not only have our usage of wireless devices kind of completely changed. I mean, I remember laughing probably with Nathan in 2007. I had a BlackBerry and I was like, I would never watch a video on this thing. Well, it's true. I ended up getting an iPhone and now my kids don't even know what a TV is. So we've kind of changed our habits and how we use wireless in general, and that's continuing to evolve. In fact, I think it will change even greater over the next 10 years. I certainly hope that in 2030, if we're having this podcast, that we're not walking around Manhattan staring at our iPhones, running into each other all the time, (laughs) trying to text something. (laughs) So my suspicion is that wireless will continue to evolve rapidly. So not only have our use of the devices changed pretty incredibly, we're no longer doing voice so much. We're doing all kinds of other stuff that look a lot more like the internet. And then the other thing that's happening is the cloud hit the wireless guys. And so they're building wireless networks right now that'll look look a lot more disaggregated. So they started to say, okay, what if I have hardware, commodity hardware like x86 or ARM-based architectures with software that we could innovate on more rapidly than once every 10 years? Like we could do updates on a regular basis and put out, you know, new features and react and change, and maybe even buy from different vendors or maybe write some of it ourselves. And so the world of portable software has hit the mobile carriers as well. So that's kind of the big trends that I'll give you in terms of how it actually runs. It's a lot less sexy than you think. These are actually starting to look more like cloud data centers. They're running servers now with some sort of software, either virtualized software running in, say, an OpenStack environment or whatnot, or containerized software that's basically accessing Linux substrate directly. So real quick, just to respond to that or or sort of summarize it and make sure that I understand, because I thought it was a beautiful answer, and then we can kick it to Nathan for for his... For, well, for for his his own perspective on, I mean, on that's a beautiful what, answer. Uh, that's a that's a high bar to clear. It, well, you maybe you can give a, a a bit of a lower level answer, and I'll try to bridge the gap between you two. But I think Zach, what you said is basically the telecoms are starting to realize that they are the layer between this highly dynamic cloud infrastructure and this highly dynamic mobile infrastructure. And like in in the mobile infrastructure world, like we know how fast our smartphones are getting better. We know that we need to like update our phones on a regular basis or else it's like you have an out of date magic wand and it's like your magic wand can't like cast the spells that you need to cast as fast as you as you want to cast them you know whether it's summoning your uber or ordering your groceries or you know or catching your pokemon or catching your pokemon like you want to be able to do all these things really fast and you know as you are doing these things you know your phone is generating packets of information that are being sent across the world to a cloud provider uh, or being routed between different cloud providers and on the critical path of that routing infrastructure, that information passage infrastructure, are telecoms. And and telecoms are basically routing these, just these bits and bytes that are in certain patterns. They're coming in certain bursts. And if you just think of it from a very low-level point of view of, of streams of bytes and bits going between the kind of mobile client and the cloud provider backend, the heavy cloud provider backend, there's a ton of logic, there's a ton of room for optimization, and the algorithms for doing that optimization are always going to change as long as the cloud providers are changing and the, and the mobile applications are changing. So it makes sense for them to have this basic, basically like say, we don't know what the future is going to hold. The best way to plan for that future is to have dynamic infrastructure, and dynamic infrastructure means software infrastructure, and if we want our software to be as performant and as reliable as possible, if we want to keep our moat, you know, these telecoms have a great, you know, position right now. If they want to keep their moat, they need to 
make their performance idealized. And idealizing that performance probably in many cases means factoring out as much risk, as much complexity, as much noisy neighbor problems as possible, which would mean having somebody that is is very focused on the performance of the hardware like packet to be handling that layer. Yeah, and I can speak to that a little bit. I mean, obviously, you know, it probably goes without saying that, you know, these uh, telecom networks are incredibly complicated, but you know, fu- fundamentally there are a few different components that go into it. I'll say there is obviously the radio, which is the RAN radio access network. Um, that's actually a thing that, you know, communicates with the radio that's in your a wireless device that does all that really complicated math to allow you to jump from one tower to the next tower to the next tower and send all the bits. And then from there, uh, it actually connects to what's called the EPC Evolve Packet Core, which is actually where you get your uh, S gateway and P gateway, which is kind of where the packets and voice data will flow out to uh, the network. And so there's been a big push to, and again, I will say that there's only a few you know, very large operators. There's fewer that have spectrum, but there's been a big push to move the evolved packet core closer to the edge. And what that does is it allows, instead of saying all of the traffic that's going to be coming off of my mobile device or all of the voice data is going to be going to a handful of CO central offices for the telcos and saying, okay, well, can we actually push this closer and closer to the edge? Can we bring so instead of everything routing through one large data center somewhere, can we actually say, well, it's going to egress from the point where that's closest to the end user so that that gives the end user, well, it enables two main primary things. One, it gives the, the user a better performance. So the latency to say, you know, loading that video or the, the throughput of that doesn't have to go across uh, big transcontinental links, but can actually happen and be served directly from or very close to where the actual end user is. So that's the first component of that, but it also allows, if you do that, it allows you to actually put other compute next to that as well. So you say, okay, well, we're egressing to the internet or appearing to a provider very close to where the end user is, but that also allows us, because of that, we're accessing the broader internet right there. We actually have the ability to put things that require a lot more uh, compute, uh, you know, whether that's GPU or traditional CPU, but it allows us to put the application extremely close to the end user, which unlocks a lot of capabilities, you know, around obviously AR, VR implications, but also other things that are, you know, maybe just a little bit more traditional things that will just, you know, naturally need to scale more as there are more users downloading more videos, playing more games, doing things that are being done. And so again, instead of kind of upgrading massive, huge, you know, data centers, which are going to have to happen anyways, but it kind of decouples that a little bit in terms of scaling this beyond is to say, well, let's actually allow this to be a little bit more fluid to allow us to put kind of hyper-dense solutions and compute into locations where we need that without having to kind of forklift the entire thing or do this massive upgrade all at once. So there's a lot more flexibility that's being introduced that allows um, this to kind of take place, you know, in the telecom space. I've heard this term colo. I think this is like a pre-millennial sort of term. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, the cloud is just somebody else's big computer in a data center. So <laughs> so Colo, there's a company, I think Equinix yep. that, is, that is a popular Colo. That's a big one. And I, so what I have heard about a Colo is basically, I mean, the, the pitch for a Colo that I've heard is like very similar to the pitch for Packet, as I understand. Like it's, if you need dedicated servers, like Colos have been around since the 90s, as far as I understand. Like you rent 
server infrastructure, basically, but you just have to rent it in a kind of a less API-driven, on-demand way than a cloud provider. Can you explain what a colo is and give me like a brief history of colo and what that is, how that's different from Packet? Yeah, totally. Well, so colocation facilities or colo, you know, effectively allow you to colocate your equipment in somebody else's building, right? And the reason why this industry came about and why Equinix, for example, is one of the leaders is because the internet started by having a place to co-locate that wasn't the phone company, right? Phone companies had networks, but how could networks stitch together? And so I believe it was the what, PAX, right? Palo Alto Internet Exchange that started, Nathan, out in the West Coast in the mid-90s, Jay Adelson. And, you know, it was the place where people came to interconnect and connect their networks. And this became kind of the fundamental part. You know, you had AOL over in uh, Ashburn, and you had like other networks that were coming around, but it wasn't really the internet because people couldn't freely interconnect over, you know, standard HTTP and route packets between each other. So colocation came about as just a building with good facilities like air conditioning and power and whatnot that also allowed you to house a router and get, you know, wires between each other's equipment. It's since become super critical. Something like Equinix has, I don't know, they have like 100 or 200 locations around the world. We call them like the major football cities of the internet. People like Digital Realty, Interaction, Cyrus, One. These are the major real estate companies now that offer data center space to enterprises, service providers, cloud companies, and whatnot. And what you get is you get like the ability to have a building, uh, to put all your stuff, all that physical maintenance and capital, but you also get a place to meet other customers. And so that's the really important part of why co-location exists and becoming ever more interesting. So that way people can interconnect and, and, and pass traffic to each other. As you probably notice when you're coding in a web page or something, there's a lot of different services that are loaded, hundreds probably, to load up a popular web page. Interconnecting and routing that traffic is, is super important to the overall performance of the application, the economics, et cetera. Okay. This is totally different than what I what I envisioned. You're, the, the main feature is like if Twilio has to do a ton of routing to AWS, then maybe they would want to share some infrastructure in a colo to accelerate. I mean, there's kind of a, a win-win situation there to co-locate. Exactly. Instead of just reaching over the internet, as it were, you can most likely you're interconnecting with AWS there in Equinix's Ashburn, Virginia facility. Equinix gives you a neutral place place to let that occur. It's very hard. Somebody like an Amazon doesn't want you walking into their data center with your router and saying, could I bring my fiber and router and put it in your data center? Um, they don't want that, right? So they're like a big giant private data center. And you know somebody has to play the role of the neutral party to allow Verizon and Twilio and Amazon and level three to get together and pass bits between each other. And so that's the major reason why service providers meet at something like the Equinix. Uh, enterprises like to be there too. And this is kind of a trend that's been happening over the past 20 years is obviously some enterprises have made the shift into the cloud, but most are still just getting out of their corporate data centers. And by corporate data centers, I mean literally their IT closets or data centers they built on their corporate campuses, which are just for them. And that was kind of the style for a long time is I have very important data. I do critical things. I have lots of applications. I'm going to run them where I can control all of that. But now so much of the value that enterprises find out of technology has to do with accessing technology ecosystems. 
different providers, different SaaS companies, you know, having your data, but being able to use a machine learning service on it that maybe you don't run, it's some third party, right? How do you do that in your own private data center? You have to bring in like MTLS lines and fix transit and kind of connect to people using dedicated lines or the internet, which could be extremely variable or not encrypted or other things like that. So people are finding enterprises are moving into those neutral places, taking their equipment out of you know, private data centers and into neutral data centers like Equinix so that they can exchange and, and kind of reach those ecosystems. A lot of them move other applications into the cloud directly, right? And, and kind of access those ecosystems at a higher level resource. But if you say have a couple hundred petabytes of, you know, storage in a legacy SAN, you're not like shipping that into Amazon, right? You're putting it someplace where you can use applications that might sit in Amazon against that data. You're going to do that over some sort of a private interconnect. Okay. If I were to boil down what Packet is and how it fits into the competitive landscape, it's basically a cloud provider with no virtualization layer. Would you say that's that's an accurate way of describing it? Yeah. I I mean, I would say that... Yes. I mean, we basically, as I tell my wife, when I come to work every day, I was like, oh, I'm just going back to work to turn the servers on and off all day long. But, you know, what we basically do is there's this layer of the, of the internet, which we just described called data centers. I say that data center as a service. You can get access to a data center without having to build your own building. And that's, you go to an Equinix or a DRT, right? Get some colo space, put in your own equipment, off you go. And then there's this layer called infrastructure as a service which is anything from turn my server on or my virtualization, my VM in EC2, all the way up to load balancer or VPC or you know something else like that, object storage, that's considered IIS. And then above that, you have SaaS, right? Give me my Salesforce, my Office 365, and maybe you have a PaaS system as well. Just run my app for me. Here's my binary, okay? What we do and what we think is missing is between the data center as a service and the infrastructure as a service, we think there's a missing very, very large sandwich called hardware as a service. And that's basically targeted at millennials like yourself. How do we put hardware, generic or special, big or small, x86 Intel or an embedded ARM device in a place, run it for you so that you can put the software, e.g. that infrastructure as a service layer, you want to write VMs on it, containers, you know, serverless stuff, I don't know, something you invented yesterday, all good. How do we give you that physical layer, the muck, the plumbing of the internet that fits between the data center and all the software you write? And and that's what Packet does. So I would consider us to be a more fundamental layer. We don't offer virtualization or runtimes. There's an article we wrote a couple months ago how we forgot to build a Kubernetes service (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you know, which means like we are never, ever, ever doing that, right? That's the world of our ecosystem. You know who writes Kubernetes services? Google and Red Hat and VMware and, you know, thousands of other developers, right? We don't need to do that. There are lots of people who can live on top of us to make that ecosystem of infrastructure usable. So hopefully that helps describe it. Well, and the really epic light bulb for me ticked on i mean i, I hope I, I hope this is a this is a correct quote I, I think this was i was watching an interview with you and you painted a picture of a world where there's a lot of fairly custom arguably narrow types of hardware that people would want to offer access to so you know the i think the 
the N of one example of this is the TPU, the tensor tensor processing unit. Yep. You know, you have people building TensorFlow models and you want to do training for those models. You want to do training. Uh, you want to do inference for those models. And, you know, machine learning, we can comfortably say is here to stay. And, you know, if, if TensorFlow is your system of choice, your your programming model of choice, and it's really important to your company, which it is for many, many, many applications, then you're going to want hardware that's optimized for that. And so you're going to want to go with a cloud provider who can give you the hardware that is optimized for that. And it's fairly easy to see a world where there are more and more kind of narrowly scoped hardware application or hardware um units. And it's like, well, okay, if I need that hardware unit once a year, like I need to train a model every like once a year or once a month, I don't want to buy a dedicated piece of hardware. And also if I'm if I'm somebody who wants to be a hardware designer and I want to design some narrow piece of hardware, there's no like hardware access marketplace out there. Like I can't say I want to make my own full stack machine learning framework system. I'm going to make, you know, Jeff flow. I want to, I want to have a JPU. I want to, I want to make the Jeff processing unit. Cause I have a different perspective on how, you know, machine learning models should be built and how they should run and, you know, the full stack thing. And I want to make that JPU accessible like a cloud provider would make a, an EC2 instance accessible. And where do where I go do to that? do that? Well, potentially pack it. Yeah. It's certainly one of our goals, and and I totally agree with you on this. You know, one of the things that I think is a misunderstood maxim, right, is that, you know, hardware is a commodity. And then we walk around with this, like, incredibly hyper-engineered piece of hardware in our pocket that we update and buy new ones every year. And when you get up on stage and people talk about the new iPhone, they don't talk about the new app. They talk about the new Bionic processor. And they talk about battery life and they talk about speed and they talk about what it does for you and how you have to look at it to unlock it, which three years ago didn't exist, right? And so most of this is unlocked by really, really special hardware being paired with really, really special hardware. And I think those two things combined, software and hardware, really make magical experience. So, you know, Packet believes that over the next decade, technology is not going to be fully innovated in JavaScript. It's going to be innovated in things that touch people's lives. And we think voice, data, you know, wireless, IoT, cars that drive themselves, you know, like energy that, that, that gets figured out in a more, you know, efficient manner. Like these are the things that are going to touch my kids' lives and my life on a more regular basis. They already are. And most of those magical experiences, they're not random, right? They're just really big. And so when they're really big, what do you do? You optimize the hardware for it. If you want to do a lot of Jeff processing, man, you better make a GPU. <laughs> and uh, you, you definitely do not want to do a lot of Jeff processing. Know. I'm, I'm telling <laughs> you, it's not, not, <laughs> not a good place to be. Not a good place to be. You don't want Jeff as a service. <laughs> well, I think what's what's kind of cool, and, and Dan Kahn gave a great talk at our at our our rainy IFX show <laughs> in Vegas. Yeah, in I saw him lot. show up there. And what he did was he, he kind of talked about like, well, why do things happen at certain times? Like, why? five years ago did Kubernetes happen, but also Docker Swarm and also Mesosphere and also, you know, like lots of like 15 other container runtimes all kind of... Nomad yeah. and this and that. Why do they all pop out, you know, thin air at the same time? And he said, you know, there's this kind of concept that you, know, you build on the shoulder of giants and then at some point it becomes possible 
for this to occur. And then it's like becomes impossible for it not to occur. Yeah. And we can kind of say that this is happening in the world of silicon, right? ARM architecture is now really usable. x86 is really competitive. RISC-V is open source. There are architectures that work with Linux. The world of software, I don't know if you're programming in uh, what language, but most of them compile against all different architectures natively now, which didn't used to be that way. And so now you've got a rich, rich world of software that can work against all kinds of architectures and a competitive silicon space that will make you a special JPU. If you've got smarts, you want to, you could license some stuff from uh, ARM and go out and build a processor for not, you don't have to be like a multi-billion dollar company to do that. You can just say, hey, I've got a really particular use case and I want to optimize the crap out of it. Maybe because I need to do it in two watts and put it in somebody's pocket. Or maybe because I want to embed it in the walls so that I just have to talk at the walls now or something. I don't know. That's exactly where this kind of technology is going to end up in. And I think, you know, yeah, people are going to need an operator unless millennials suddenly want to start doing it all themselves. But I just don't think they don't want to own cars or apartments. So I'm not really sure that we're going to get them to own specialty JPUs. Yeah. And you want the model where a hacker in a dorm room can design a piece of hardware and click a button and have that spec for hardware sent to Shenzhen and produced and then shipped to packet and be accessible all as a service. I think that world is totally attainable. I think so. I think we can create a place where there can be a lot more innovation for the world of software and that it won't be just, you know, up to the biggest five, 10 companies in the world who get to create magical experiences that combine software and hardware, but open to thousands of people. And gosh darn it, we probably need it, you know, because we can't like wait for a couple of companies to innovate our way out of the big technology and societal problems that we have in front of us. Yeah. We're going to need a more diverse answer in the world of open source, which has been a huge part of my career. And, you know, something that, you know, me and, and Nathan and the rest of the team here not only support avidly, but use avidly, right? We think that the 25 million developers in the world today are primarily going to develop, you know, open source software, right? Or portable software. These ecosystems have allowed this massive amount of innovation. Well, we need to allow a substrate for that innovation to touch hardware, no matter what that hardware is, because we can't just, uh, you know, build game-changing technological experiences based upon the same stuff we have, right? We're going to have to build it off of maybe new things. So wouldn't that be cool if the pace of software and the pace of hardware could move together for most people? So it's a great vision, pretty distinct. The playbook, it almost sounds like you could run the CDN playbook. So like Cloudflare, as I understand, Cloudflare like I'm not sure if they have their own data centers. They might have some of their own data centers, but I believe most of what they do is strike deals with data centers throughout the world. And they basically get, they, they lease enough uh, territory at each of those existing data centers where they can... Colos. Are they colos? Is that what it is? Yep. Yeah. So they're colo. So they just like grab some space at every colo that they need access yeah. to and they get this huge network. Yep. You know, they can do whatever they want with that space. And, you know, you as the developer get the sense that Cloudflare is, is this omnipresent behemoth. And it basically is. But it, that doesn't mean that Cloudflare has to own tons and tons and tons of assets. A lot of it is just leases. 
Yeah, I mean, they've definitely taken space in colos. I don't think they build data centers, right? I think they just rent space, data centers as a service, and put their own kind of specialty hardware in those, which move packets really quick and fast and efficiently. So, yeah, I think that, you know, that's really cool. The thing is, though, it took them years and a lot of money to be able to put their servers, which aren't that special, they're kind of semi-special, in 100 locations. And what I think needs to happen, especially as we look towards what Nathan was describing around 5G, which allows you to actually put your application closer to the wireless network, and people might start to have experiences that count on that or that you can really innovate on. Uh, we're not talking about people's cell phones. We're talking about cars or you know, different worldviews, di- totally different applications that we've got now. Maybe the analogy is my 2007 BlackBerry versus my 2019 iPhone. I wonder what 2025X interface will be for me. But, you know, people need a substrate to deliver that. The problem is you have to have, and you can kind of tell with CDNs, CDNs are the ultimate PaaS platform. It's like Fastly is an amazing company that basically is incredible at running varnish code, right? And Cloudflare is an amazing company that's like really, really good at running HTTP, right? And maybe a couple other things. And so I think that the question is, is, you know, does, is that going to be enough or is there going to be more innovation in software and people are going to need a lower level substrate like hardware um, or a fundamental runtime that they can use? That's our goal. And so the, what we're trying to do is say, hey, can we partner with the real estate of the world? Those big data center partners, tower companies that are supporting the molding business, mobile businesses or commercial real estate, like where you're probably sitting right now in a WeWork or in a Brookfield office center or at the mall. And can we partner and make it so that if you, a 50 person startup in San Francisco, want to deploy a specialty type of hardware with your software in 200 places around the world, that should be a like easy thing to do. Should be a couple week process. Right now it would take you years. Yeah, and that's really also, you know, I think that there's a, you know, this isn't really just a theoretical concern. I mean, there are a lot of the new applications, you know, when you're in the cloud, you know, not a problem when you're just throwing off megabytes or gigabytes or terabytes of data every minute. That's a much different problem when you're trying to develop and deploy an application in not even just 200, 2,000, 20,000 locations, because it's just a different problem. You just, you can't do this, the things that, you do when offloading everything to somebody else and they're just going to figure out figure it out in the background and you're not going to have to think about it. Those are real problems and they require innovative thinking around how to be able to do this sort of thing at scale, both in terms of actually getting the work done, but also the expertise around it. You know, hardware is not the easiest thing to work with. I mean, there's, there's a reason why we've spent and it's taken five years. I mean, it to, had the word hard in it. <laughs> exactly. Hardware is hard, <laughs> uh, both, both literally and, and metaphorically. And that's something that there's the practical reality of knowing what to do and how to do it and the optimizations and the realities. There's, you know, power concerns, profiles, you know, backup, you know, redundancy, where you want to actually firmware. <laughs> firmware. Like there's there's so many things that go into actually being able to turn the thing on and have it be useful. And any one of those things that goes wrong means that you're not able to deploy your deploy or use the application, which degrades the entire experience. And you know, your awesome, amazing, cool application that does incredible things with massive amounts of data, the edge is not just sort of sitting metal bricks that don't do anything because something went wrong. And that's something that really, I think, gets lost in all of this, which is that, you know, there's actually a lot of expertise, operational expertise that kind of goes into making something like that a reality because the physical constraints that you have are much different than when you are going into a colo facility where, you know, there's been 20, 30, 40 years 
of kind of institutional knowledge around how you design and develop and deploy data centers. And now how do we compress that and multiply it by, you know, 10 or 100 fold? And those are, you know, areas that I think that being in a hardware delivery as a service kind of business, which is we can put whatever hardware that is, wherever you need it very, very quickly across the world and allow you to deploy your application at that speed as well. You know, there's, there's an enormous amount of effort that goes into actually making that a reality. And what does that supply chain look like? Is it the Cloudflare playbook? Are you going to these colos and Equinixes and whatevers and making deals with them? Or where are you getting your infrastructure from? Well, you certainly make uh, partnerships where we're definitely a buyer, right, of uh, co-location. We don't build data centers. We do build our own hardware so that we can make the delivery of hardware easier, better, faster at small scale. You know, most of the hardware supply chain right now is built for hyperscale. Think 100,000 servers a month coming in via C containers into a big data center in Ashburn. Whoa. That's not what we do. I don't think that's what anybody else except for a few people in the world do. And so... Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I, I, was, I, was, I was enchanted for a moment. And, oh, it's, yeah, pretty, I guess, it's pretty amazing, yeah. right? When you're, when you're running one, one big app called like EC2, right? I mean, how many servers are we talking coming coming over on a ship ever? Well, I mean, for us or for somebody like... For you, yeah, yeah, yeah. for you. I mean, thousands, right? Okay. Which is still a problem, but we do it at a very different scale. Like, we believe that the vast majority of the world is subscale, right? You have seven or eight hyperscalers who buy 100,000 of the same thing every month. While every other enterprise that I've run into or use case, you know, they need five really special these things in these places, maybe times 10 places or 20 or 50 or 100. And maybe they use them for one year, maybe they use them for 10. So we think the world of, of infrastructure, the future looks a lot more, has a lot more heterogeneity to it, and it doesn't look homogenous. So we've built a supply chain and expertise around deploying small things in places, you know, in, in lots of places. So a lot of that has to do with our hardware innovation. Basically, uh, we use an open source hardware project called Open19, where we remove the cabling from the time of installation. We think that's super important because it's pretty hard to get consistent and ship some servers to Jakarta and have them get plugged in appropriately and serviced and whatnot. So we're trying to make them feel serviceable. And then what we do is we partner with real estate. So we partner with people like SBA Communications, the third largest tower company in the United States, to build modular data centers where they deploy data centers into cities for us, and we fill them full of computers. We partner with the large REITs, co-location infrastructure partners, to build delivery models to say, how can we build the packet hardware delivery platform in all of your data centers? and make that something that can be more directly accessible to your customers. So, you know, Packet's just a small little business. We're 130 people. We're going against the biggest kind of companies in the planet in a very capital-intensive business. And so what we do is we say, we're ecosystem-based. We can't do this whole thing. All we are are these plumbers that make servers go into places and turn them on and off with consistent APIs so software can work. But we have some great friends in the real estate side or great friends in the software side and together, we can make a more powerful ecosystem. So there was an article we put out a couple of weeks ago called Ecosystems are the New Oil. None of these big problems like how do cars turn left and right get solved by one company verticalizing it and saying, here, we solve the autonomous car problem globally. Well, there's probably going to be a whole lot of people playing in that. Same thing like civic infrastructure, or IoT. You're just not going to go into every city on the planet and say, it's okay, we're going to run everything our way. You're going to work with them. It's going to be different in different cities or different places, different players, different sizes of capital, different types of software, different regulatory environments. So 
we think the world's a lot more diverse, and, and that's the angle we're going for. So Epic Vision, really interesting. I, I have a lot of other questions that I could ask around cloud providers and infrastructure and debt and stuff, but you're both musicians. Yeah. Zach, I know you're a very serious musician in the sense that you, you attended Juilliard. I don't know your background as well, Nathan, but I would love to just hear from I played violin from at Harvard. It's not really that interesting. Jeez. That's not entirely okay. true. I did play violin for, for many, many years, but... And Jacob also, Zach, your brother is a musician also, right? Yeah, yeah, he's a bassoon player. So yeah, a little, so, little, little bit of a concert band going on here. I guess to close off, for both of you, what are the commonalities between a successful orchestra and a successful technology company? Well, I'll give my 60 second, Nathan, you did give his. Unfortunately, I was a bass player, so I was always in the back of the orchestra. So I'm like taking my opportunity to get the baton and sit up in front. <laughs> so that's, that's been my, my approach. Well, listen, I mean, one of the things you have to have in a great orchestra like the New York Philharmonic, you have, you know, 100 experts who are all individually amazing at what they do, but are also exceptional at working together. And I think a great run company is no different. You have to have leadership and a vision, know where you're going. And then everybody has to be experts at what they do, have their unique value to add, and then be humble enough to work together. And so I think being a great tech company, especially when you're trying to innovate and move fast in big markets, you have to have that kind of rapport. So great leadership up at the top, hopefully within each section, you know, it's like the analogies can go further. And then really excellent independent people who can have their own mind, have their own way of doing things, their own, you know, kind of super human strengths, their own superpowers, but they got to in the end perform together. Otherwise you just end up breaking apart, you know, and you go in different directions. You can't hit the downbeat at the same time. So that's the analogy I take. How about you, Nathan? I would echo that. I mean, I think you hit the major points. I would also say that, you know, you have to really find people who are passionate about it. I think that when you look at, you know, playing an instrument or doing bare metal hardware, you know, this is something that Zach and I have worked together for over a decade at this point, I think 14 or 15 years. And it's one of those things where we learn new things every single day. We do it because we love it. I think surrounded ourselves with like-minded people who really care and love and, and don't mind showing up to work every day. And in some cases, doing the same thing, because knowing that's going to make us better every single day and we're going to learn something every single day. And that's really certainly learning an instrument, you know, practice, 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 practice. That's what it's all about. You do the same thing over and over and over again and you make little incremental progress along the way. And I think of that, especially with something that apparently has been a solved problem, bare metal infrastructure. We don't do that kind of thing anymore. It's already solved. It's really not. You know, there's a lot of things that we've obviously touched on that a lot today. But, you know, there's a lot of innovation. There's a lot of things happening. There's a lot of demands that are requiring that a business like ours exists. And I think that finding people who are passionate about that is really crucial to making it successful. Guys, thanks for coming on the show. Great conversation. Really ambitious company. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. 